This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Stained glass? Digital photos? A pile of rocks? Today, we join the co-hosts of the Embedded Church podcast and talk about how the church builds memories on this special episode of Device and Virtue. Well, hello. Welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. Hey, Chris. Today is a special episode. Okay. We're not just on our own podcast today. We're actually on someone else's podcast, even though people are listening to us on our podcast. Wait, we're on both podcasts? (laughs) We're on two podcasts, man, at the same time. I'm calling it a podcast playdate. We joined forces with Sarah Joy Propay and Eric Jacobson. They are the co-hosts of the Embedded Church podcast, where they share stories about reweaving the connections between place, the built environment, and the mission of God. The built environment. Yeah. I mean, so neighborhoods, I've seen their stuff like urban planning, how you can walk from the church on your sidewalks <laughs> to your neighbor's house. Why are we, a, we're a tech podcast. Oh, what are we doing? <laughs> hey man, the built environment is part of our overarching idea of what technology is. When I heard about their podcast and started listening to them, I'm like, we're going to love these guys. And we were not disappointed. <laughs> you no, know, you're right. And there are so many connections. I mean, yeah. not the least of which is I just love the topics they're talking about on yeah. my own. I know I'm supposed to be the digital space guy, and they definitely <laughs> thought in our conversation that I'd be like, you're just all online. <laughs> but they've taken a lot of insights from things like urban planning, yeah. which thinks a lot about how do you design neighborhoods so they're human-sized? How do right. you walk from house to house to go shopping? Mm-hmm. And how does that affect the community of the church? And we talk about digital spaces all the time. You were the one that sort of put those two thoughts together. So this conversation winds up being super fun and we range all over the place yeah and they had lots of questions about our thinking about digital technology and how it's shaping the church right and so they had questions for us we had questions for them eric jacobson is a lead pastor in tacoma washington and he's also written a book he's written a number of books but one book is called three pieces of glass why we feel lonely in a world mediated by screens i feel like we need a whole other conversation oh, with him about that he talks about three screens the car windshield the tv and the smartphone and how they're shaping our experience and faith life okay so, well he's definitely I I mean, thinking about tech as yeah. well. And he's joined by Sarah Joy Propay. She is a consultant who started the Proximity Project, and she consults with churches about how they can be more strategic in how they contribute to the communities that they're a part of and be a welcoming space and not just have these chain link fences that are protecting their property, but will allow people to flourish in those neighborhoods. That's fascinating. And you guys picked a specific theme for the day, which was really interesting. Memory. Yeah. How the church builds memories from 
building an Ebenezer, or which is like the old <laughs> hymn way Ooh, of saying old a pile of rocks, to how we do that as a community today. So we get to talk about that from the digital perspective and the physical church perspective. Great. Let's hit play and listen to this episode with the Embedded Church Podcast. Hey, Sarah Joy. Hey, Eric. Welcome to Device and Virtue. Awesome. It's so good to be here. But I also (laughs) wanted to say, hey, Adam and hey, Chris, welcome to the Embedded Church. This is amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Have any of you listened to two podcasts at once? Doing it right now. Right. What? Today, yeah, I've never we, done that. Is that some two technological advance I don't know about? It is. We are recording yeah. two podcasts at the same time, a joint podcast between the Embedded Church podcast and Device and Virtue. I'm super excited about this. There's so much overlap between our podcasts. You guys are talking about the physical environment, and we've been talking about the digital environment and how, Ooh, okay. how all of these environments sort of come in and affect the church and affect Christians. We're really coming at the same topic from different angles. Like this was a podcast play date made in heaven. Yeah. That was great. I'm excited. So you reached out to me to talk about, hey, how do we do this podcast play dates? And then I was like, well, I got to see if these guys are legit and actually check out their podcast. (laughs) And of course, because I love dystopian ideas. The first podcast I listened to oh. of y'all's was the Ring Doorbell episode. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, I see. Everybody's watching you. Yeah. <laughs> I think we called it the Neighborhood Surveillance state. Right? Yeah. But what was so great about that episode is it brought to mind so many ideas of Jane Jacobs and the mm. famous urbanist and the eyes on the street ideas that she puts forth and appeals for neighbors looking out for neighbors, except... Now yeah. technology was putting this okay. new spin on that and actually really creating this world that. of suspicion. So I was like, well, we got to pick these people's brain about this because I'm not sure if I'm yeah. into technology. And that's why Chris and I are arguing the wrongs and rights of technology and faith, because I am sort of like you, Sarah Joy. I'm a little bit more dystopian. Uh, Chris is a little bit more of the alpha technology consumer and... We found ourselves in so much conflict that we decided we needed to argue about it and subject other people to listening to our arguments. So that's what we've been doing now for eight seasons, which is crazy. But I'm curious, how did you guys become interested in the notion of walkable churches, walkable neighborhoods? And then how did you guys decide to like launch a podcast about it? Yeah, yeah, and let's do introductions as well, because I know we have four voices going, yeah. so maybe we'll say our names again so people can identify yeah. us. Sure. So I'm Sarah Joy Propay, and my co-host is... I'm Eric Jacobson. <laughs> I was going to say, the basis for our podcast was much more friendly. We kind of toot each other's own horns. Mm. So I would say that my love for the built environment started way back when I was already like 12 years old. I played a lot of Sim oh, City wow. as a kid. Love Sim City. I just want to take a moment that that should blow your mind right there. It does. I've never heard this story. Because <laughs> yeah. that's already weaving the connections between built environment and technology, yeah. right? Because we have a computer game. No you, Sarah Joy. What, what's happening here? So maybe this we need great. a whole podcast on Sim City. Uh, Sarah Joy, question is, did you use the nuclear power plant or not? No, of course not. <laughs> the, oh, because yeah. if you use the coal power plant, Solar. it did pollution in your residential yeah, zone. Yeah, but then the other one can blow it. things up. You know, it's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, I'm feeling really alienated right now. <laughs> <laughs> so always been intrigued by urban planning, worked in real estate development for many years, and mm. really saw that oh, there was wow. a gap with churches, particularly in understanding 
the resource that they have with their property and how to be better integrated in their local community and how they could advocate for human flourishing through this means of the built environment. So wanted to do something about it. I've started my own consulting business in that regard, working with churches. That's called Proximity Project. And I also co-host this awesome podcast with Eric. I'm going to let Eric tell you more about how we met and came up with the idea. And then I'll correct any details he confuses. Yeah. (laughs) Usually the way it goes. (laughs) Yeah, my interest in the built environment, church stuff goes way back. I I had one of those strange American experiences that's unusual where I didn't see my first suburb until my sophomore year in college. I didn't see an automobile oriented community. And I thought it was the strangest thing I'd ever seen. Houses that all looked the same and you could only get places by automobile. It was Mm. totally bizarre. Mm. So I've lived in walkable neighborhoods almost my entire life. And as a pastor, Mm. I've formed a lot of my identity around like, oh, you should be able to walk. You bump into people, you know, on the way to other things, that kind of reality. So that seemed really normal to me. I realized 25 years ago that that was kind of unusual Mm -hmm. and it was very niche to have that perspective. And then over the past 25 years, I've started to find other people that have similar interests. And I think it's really, in some ways, the tide has shifted to some extent where a lot of Americans are choosing to live in walkable neighborhoods and really like that. I feel like my sense is the church is kind of behind on that. We're still thinking about drivable you know, the ideal is a big parking lot. You have a successful church. Oh, there man. are parking lot ministries. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I mean, there's, there's a place for that, but I think we're... Ministries for the parking lot. Yeah, I feel like the church is <laughs> the church in general is kind of missing the tide of the demographic switch to more walkable communities. And yeah. so, so Joy and I bumped into each other early in this process. And I think it was a Congress for the New Urbanism. There weren't a ton of Christians tracking this stuff. And so the few oh. of us that were... What is... Okay. Tell us about the Congress for New Urbanism. So, you want to pick that that one, Sarah Joy? Or? <laughs> it's kind of a special interest advocacy group. So, it's comprised of urban planners, architects, developers, and then a few random pastors like Eric. People who are interested <laughs> in these ideas of returning cities to the human scale. And so, creating mm. environments that are walkable, that are more pedestrian-oriented. And so, yeah, they have a conference that they do every year in a different city. It's a really great way to Mm. expose a lot of people to a city and its design and how it can be better designed and the things that have gone well, the things that have gone poorly. And it just really educates and teaches people how to advocate and build in that way. So it's a great place to get involved. There's a ton of resources. So I always encourage people to check them out. Eric and I, we sat on a board together. There's a subgroup within the Congress for the New Urbanism, the Members Christian Caucus, which is People who have a faith orientation that are looking to connect these ideas to religious communities, specifically Christian communities. So we sat on that board together and then the podcast was birthed. Yeah. yeah. He did do like a little pre-interview call, even though he already knew me. He was like, I need to vet vet you a little bit more. I wish I had asked about Sim City then. I didn't realize that. That would have been helpful. You didn't realize I was a computer nerd on the side. I'm not sure if you would have made the cut at that point. Eric, you've written a couple of books as well, right? I have, yeah. My initial book on the subject was Sidewalks in the Kingdom, where I was really just trying to highlight to the Christian community that there's this really vigorous discussion about people who think that maybe designing everything around the car wasn't such a great idea and we ought to relook yeah. at that. So I was just mostly pointing people to other people's writing. Then the next two books after Sidewalks in the Kingdom, I followed that up with The Space Between. And then the third book was called Three Pieces of Glass. Those awesome. are more attempts to build sort of a theological case for kind of the walkable community using those things. 
I think we'll have to get back to the three pieces of glass a little bit because that seems like it has some connection between urban design and yeah, technology. Yeah, absolutely. And faith. Yeah. That's great. All right. Well, I'd say enough about Eric and me. What about you all? Tell us how you all <laughs> met. How did you get into these ideas? Well, I'm Chris Ridgway, and uh, yes, I am the co-host of the Device and Virtue podcast with Adam. Yeah. Adam said our tagline, we talk about technology and faith in everyday life. We like to say we argue about technology and faith, like he was saying. (laughs) We met, I was actually a Microsoft consultant straight out of school, always liked sort of, you know, a computer nerd growing up. I did play SimCity and, you know, built my own computers and things, but realized that in college I had this really amazing experience of Jesus getting to me and going, I really want to do Christian ministry. And so I left my Microsoft consulting role after a year and a half and went into campus ministry working with students for a long time. And I found this was early internet days. Dial up. Doing like black and white email. Well, no, (laughs) University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, where I went, was actually had the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, the NCSA, and they they invented the internet. Al Gore did not invent the World Wide Web. I can show you the building on our campus where it was invented. Fake news. (laughs) I'm kidding. So our campus was really tech forward and you know a lot of student ministry was on chat even really early and then we were one of the first campuses in the nation aside from the Ivy Leagues to get Facebook and so I have a 2004 Facebook account and found that I was doing interaction with students about faith and relationships and things in that environment very early and so after six years of that I realized I really want to study what's happening more and so one of going to seminary in Chicago and did research on how scripture and Twitter work together and And at the same time, really thinking a lot about church planting. And so I love the conversation for you guys about uh, missional church, local church were other words that I was interested in. And I met Adam uh, on the internet, which is like a bad dating joke. (laughs) Oh, it is so true. Which medium? Twitter, Facebook? How did it all play out? Oh, oh, it predates that. So my name is Adam Graber. We met through blogs. I started following his blog, Theo Digital, in like 2009. (laughs) And you were that weird commenter on all his posts? (laughs) Oh, I was totally that guy. He was was totally that guy. Not even a question. But see, those trolling comments can turn into friendships. So... Uh, and yeah, 10 years later, we're creating a podcast. I was working in Bible publishing and I read a book. That's how it all started for me. I read a book called The Hidden Power of Electronic Culture. Shane Hips. Shane wow. Hips. It yeah. opened the world to me around technology and faith. And I have not looked back. And then just before COVID, I did a master's in digital theology and That's a thing? Yeah, it's a thing. Whoa. Was it online or and, in real and, life? And it, was, it was hybrid. <laughs> so I was there in person for a couple blocks of class, and then the rest of it was online. But yeah, that was at Durham University in the UK. And then Chris and I, we met in 2014, I think, right, Chris? Something like that. We met in person for the first time. And then we discovered we liked to have arguments because Adam thought technology was just showing our lives. Yeah. And I thought technology was opening a lot of new <laughs> possibilities. And eventually we thought we should really hit record on these. Yeah. You know? We were both making good points. <laughs> and Were we? Were both of us? Yeah. <laughs> was anybody else listening? Yeah. Eric and Sarah Joy, what you guys should know is that we are friendly <laughs> kneelers. Our listeners mm. will know that we poke each other quite a lot. And so uh, we are friends. So people need to know that this is friendly needling. Yeah. Yeah. But today we wanted to talk about memory and the role memory plays in churches and how the digital environment and the physical environment are involved in how we make memory and how that memory is 
shaping our identities, but also shaping our churches. Sarah Joy, you had mentioned this idea of Cairns, and I'm curious if you can sort of unpack that idea for us. Cairns. Cairns. Yes. Yeah. That's the word? C-A-I-R-N-S. Okay. When she first said it, I, th- I thought she was talking about women freaking out at, no. at uh, Trader Joe's about masks. <laughs> right? <laughs> That's what I heard. So, Karen, maybe it's just my Southern accent coming out. I don't know. Karen, so like a trail marker, right? That's Correct. I, yes, or... a trail marker of sorts. So a monument, an identifier, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And a user generated trail marker, I should add. Yes. So oh, if anybody's seen the stacks of rocks when you're on a trail. So I love to think about it, especially in terms of biblically, where, how are we called to set Karens? Because I think we have very clear scripture references, particularly as the Israelites are wandering through the wilderness, God calls them to set up these mm-hmm. monuments or these markers where he has shown himself faithful. And I think that that's just a really beautiful mm-hmm. way that we can use something physical to really help create an identity, help create a memory. And so I've really challenged churches to think about how do we do that as a modern day church, set those type of things, those Karens, so that people who are part of the church community can point to markers and say, this is a story of how God has shown himself to be faithful to me as an individual, to us as a community. And so I do a lot of work with churches and thinking about placemaking and thinking about what is their story in the local community and how can they represent that with something physical on their property that Sparks curiosity, mm. sparks delight, sparks storytelling that can use as a reference point to who God is and how he has shown himself faithful to their story. And so, in regard to that, I've often thought, unfortunately, the digital world seems to be working against our ability to remember and to create memory, right? Mm. We live in this fast-paced mm-hmm. environment where we're always clicking to the next thing, creates attention deficit disorders, <laughs> if you will. So, it works <laughs> against a lot of that call to remember. And so, that was kind of what I came back to Adam with of like, well, if y'all are in support of the digital space... How can you use that in a way that encourages memory and care and building in a digital way? Mm -hmm. Is there a way? I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's such a fascinating question. And so that's the topic we want to talk about today. So we decided that we had some questions for you guys, Embedded Church, and I know you guys have some questions for us. So we're just going to kind of pop back and forth between these questions around memory in the digital environment and memory in the physical environment. And then hopefully we can get to some answers to that question of how do we build memory, build identity, build community for these churches, hopefully both in the physical and the digital environment. Sarah Joy, you've already kind of touched on this a little bit, this idea that, you know, these shared memories help us create community both inside the church and outside the church. As you guys think about digital spaces, And you've said, you know, man, they seem to be diminishing our memory. What kinds of shared memories would you hope to see created in digital spaces? So, yeah, I could I could jump in. You know, even though Sergio and I don't have an ops perspective, we have a different framework in some ways. And I think, Sergio, your development side, you're you're thinking more about like the physicality of space and whatnot. I'm coming from more a pastoral, almost human. I'm thinking about my take on what creates the memories. So, Jane Jacobs, we've we talked about before, and this great concept of the ballet of street life, 
where she would mm. pay attention to how people coming and going on the streets made this impromptu kind of ballet of mm. incidental contact and, and it had a shape and a feel and energy. I love that concept. And so when I look at the church, I love it. Yeah. I think about the ballet of street life. Like, okay, what's people are leaving worship, coming to worship, they're clustering, they're talking, they're bumping into each other, saying things. And to me, that's one of the most beautiful things. And that's the thing I missed the most when we were shut down with the pandemic and we came back and we clued into that. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about how do we track some of that in the digital environment? And I'm kind of a not super sophisticated technologically, so I don't, I don't think I have great answers. But I, during the pandemic, we didn't have very many people in worship. During the past in the piece, we said, hey, just pull out your phone and text five people. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it created right. this random, you didn't know who was going to come at you and stuff. And it had that little bit of that feel. <laughs> But again, it was, you know, the downside of that is that because of that nature of that thing where it's, it's not incidental contact, you're actually deliberately contacting mm-hmm. someone. It almost had a little bit of a popularity contest kind of feel like I'd come over. My wife would say, I got 12 texts. I mean, if you get, <laughs> you know, like, because oh, yeah. you're just texting people that you think of, which tend to be the interesting people or, but, you know, whatever. And so the people who don't know as many people aren't going to get as many texts. And so. I don't really have an answer so much as I, how do we create that valley of street life in a digital way that allows for incidental contact and the, and the shape of crowds? Right. I'm such, yeah. That's just clarifying the question. <laughs> well, I think it's hard to have it transition fully to just the digital platform, right? So I think that there's a way that you can kind of mesh these two worlds together, the in real life and the digital, but mm-hmm. I don't know if there's an answer to fully creating memories in digital spaces. That's more of our question for you all. But one of the things that comes to mind, too, (laughs) is Kleinenberg's book, Palaces for the People. And he is a great example in that book of some older people who come together at the local library who are in a bowling club, quote unquote, right? But it's a virtual online bowling club. And so the local team is there Uh together in the library playing at the, not computer, whatever it is, setup that they have in the library, but they'll be playing other teams that are located at other like libraries. Wee, there wee you bowling. go. Wee bowling. Yeah, yeah. See, that's how much technology I yeah. don't know. Funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 But anyway, so I think there's <laughs> kind of that bridge that's happening there between the digital space because these teams do get to know each other, right? And they get t-shirts and everything. Yeah. They get all the like accoutrements of bonding in a physical right. way. <laughs> so the team themselves is there together, but then the teams they're playing are virtual, right? And so I think, again, it's bridging that divide. And I bet, I bet they don't have cheap beer, though. They I don't guess. have what? Oh, cheap beer. <laughs> cheap beer at the library. Probably not. That, yeah. <laughs> One of the downsides, right? <laughs> and then I would say, too, even for me, as I was thinking about this question and what kind of shared memories I've been able to develop through digital spaces. And again, it's that... Mm-hmm. Connection between in real life and the digital space during COVID, my friends and I would watch like Hamilton together or have various watch parties, if you will. Yeah. And I think course. what was really interesting about yeah. that is because like a show like Hamilton, not a lot of people would have access to to go with like a group of friends and watch it. Right. But because of this new digital platform and Disney Plus, you can watch it together mm-hmm. and you can share this experience with a larger group of people across, you know, many places. And so I think that that is something that's been helpful and it's become a tradition of now we like watch it every fall together, right? So it's created that memory around a digital space, yet there's still an in real life element that's happening with it. So I don't know if that fully answers y'all's question or if you have thoughts about that. Well, I really appreciate what you said, Sarah Joy, about meshing the digital and physical. I think Chris would generally agree. There's a hope not to replace physical life, but to supplement or augment it and to find ways that connection can happen 
and that it can be integrated into a shared experience. So I even think of just like group text threads, Mm -hmm. text messages. I'm in various group chats and those group experiences do create a certain degree of shared experience among friends. Now, it very much is like you have to be in the in-group and not on the out-group. And those are very defined. And I think, Eric, it's interesting the way you pointed out, you know, with the text messaging, it immediately went to quantifying how many text messages you got. Like if you're just walking around church on Sunday, you're not thinking about how many people did I interact with. You don't quantify it that way. It's just incidental and you're not comparing it the you know when you walk out of church with your wife and so there is something about the digital space that tends to quantify these things how many comments did i get how many likes did i get how many retweets did i get and so but that's an important point yeah. that i'm jumping on him but a lot of times we do actually have differences. So the popular person at church might have more people walk up to them in the physical right. space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the digital space is doing something different with our brains right. where we notice it differently. Mm-hmm. And so we talk a lot about digital environments changing ratios of senses, like and that's a Marshall McLuhan phrase, but changing the way we notice things, but not necessarily changing the actual things. Uh, and we'll probably come back to that a lot, but I'm like, yeah, well, sort of that's is fascinating. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just making it more obvious. Right. Yeah, yeah, but it's also sure. a little more hidden in some ways, too, because you don't necessarily know who's getting how many texts from somebody else. Eric, you know, because your wife and you are having oh, that conversation. Point. But and I might you know, tweet about it. <laughs> well, if you do that, you know, <laughs> but then if you're physically at church, you're able to actually see, oh, that person is obviously mm-hmm. there's a cluster. Right. There's a cluster around. So it's person. weird because there's also yeah, a hidden yeah, element to yeah. it, too. Exactly. So heightened, heightened awareness in one way, numbed awareness yeah. in another way. Oh. And those things are constantly shifting in a digital space. He's using the numbing. You will hear us refer to Marshall <laughs> yeah. McLuhan a lot, which you guys probably understand as the Canadian professor yeah, yeah. in the 60s. that talked a lot about the internet and television and wrote Understanding Media and predicted a lot of the internet. And he also was a really devoted Catholic. And so a lot of his theories, among others, wind up coming yeah. up a lot when we talk. He, he, he's the Jane J. <laughs> there you exactly. go. I was just thinking, <laughs> we, should, that's who we should be keeping tallies on. How many times you mentioned those names? One of them will win. <laughs> well, branching off of that idea, we have a question for the device and virtue team. Let's go. We just talked about that tacit memories are important to our experience of belonging and identity formation. So are there ways that these tacit memories could be formed and recalled in real life and online environments? Talk to us a bit about that. Well, one thing we want to emphasize is, again, what we are talking about. There's no such thing as the online environment separate from the physical environment. I've written a lot of this. I wrote a bunch of screeds against pastors preaching terrible sermons about technology a few years ago, where I'd hear so many pastors talking about, oh, you're, you know, you're in your phone and you're not like loving your neighbor. And the reality is, is we don't have many people that are doing the old Sandra Bullock in a basement with a pizza box, never seeing any person. The net. That's an old movie reference. I loved that movie. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. You know, never seeing a real person with the screen glowing on their face and then living down there for months. The reality is the question we need to ask with digital technology is how is the digital environment reshaping the physical environment? Mm -hmm. How is the smartphone changing the way people think and relate when they're Mm -hmm. sitting in a pew? 
these things work together. You know, Lawrence Scott wrote a book called The Four-Dimensional Human. I love this framing. We think of four dimensions as time. He was thinking about four dimensions as our phone. So we have the three dimensions of the people and the built space around us. And the fourth dimension is that meta conversation that's going on at all times above it. And so we've got to think about these not as dichotomies, but as interrelated. That's our, you know, our first thing. But I will say, (laughs) when it comes to the tacit knowledge or that implicit knowledge that we get when we're sitting in a room and you sort of know those people are sitting over there by themselves and her hair is dyed and I hear an accent over here. You know, I like to say my definition of culture is what's normal here? Mm -hmm. Like what is normal in this space? And it's really hard to pick up the what's normal here on a Slack yeah. chat at work. Yeah. It's it's really hard to pick up a what's normal here if we started with only a digital environment. Mm-hmm. It helps on Zoom a little bit because at least we have facial expressions. The churches, for instance, during the pandemic that did really well online were the churches that had good relational culture in and of themselves. I was connected with a church in a new church plant on the south side of Chicago that was about 50 people, fairly young, energetic, that all lived in the same neighborhood, in the Bridgeport neighborhood of Chicago. And many people chose to move close to each other and get apartments nearby. And we all were hanging out at a local coffee shop down the street and people were in a chat thread going, hey, can I borrow, you know, like a a toothbrush? (laughs) Probably not a toothbrush. But But we were doing that and then the pandemic hit and suddenly we had to go to Zoom, right? And instead of doing a broadcast one-way communication, we chose to stay in Zoom where it was two ways, like where it was interactive. And that environment of community splashed into the online environment where we already had that implicit knowledge. And I think relationships deepened because we had some of the tacit knowledge. It would have been very hard to build that from scratch without having the original physical knowledge. So I guess that's admitting that the tacit knowledge requires physicality, but I'm also saying that the physicality is usually already there somehow. Yeah, I would totally agree. You know, when I think about going around my community, I have interactions with people that I see at church and maybe I'll see them at work or maybe I see them at a coffee shop. Maybe I see them online. But because of that, I have this sort of holistic sense of my own identity because the things that they know about me from church or from work or from running into each other at the coffee shop, that translates or transfers into that other space where I run into them. So I run into a friend at church and then I see them at a coffee shop. They already know something about me from church and that carries over. And so there's this continuity for me of identity because I don't actually have to re- introduce myself to that person. I don't have to, you know, tell them all about who I am and what I do. They kind of know that from this other context. And when I think about that in a digital space, I think the same thing happens where I have these sort of thick connections with other people across multiple apps. Mm -hmm. So Chris, for example, we're connected via text message. We are connected on Instagram, on TikTok. I send him TikToks. (laughs) He never responds. But we have shared Google. That's why no one's falling asleep at night. We're just losing sleep watching TikTok. (laughs) We share files in Google Drive. And so there's all these different ways that our friendship overlaps. And that's reflected in the number of connections that we have across these different apps. And so that really creates this sort of thick connection of community and mm-hmm. and connection. And I do think that like the thinner my connections are online, the thinner my relationship is with them in real life to some degree. And those things kind of reinforce each other or diminish each other as as the case may be. 
And yeah. I, I find that to be a way that our identity and our community can sort of interact and reinforce each other digitally and physically. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think my struggle always is, is with the thin connections that exist today and how, because you don't have those understanding of people in real life yeah. and what constitutes their character yeah. and their personality and all of these things, you can make very swift judgments, which is what we see happen so often in the mm -hmm. online circles, right? And so that's always a struggle for me of how do we, how do you thicken those connections? Do you try to? Do you worry about that? You can't be thickly connected to the entire world. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, don't you think one of the interesting things about us, you know, the age of social media is that we've kept a lot mm -hmm. of long tail connections. So like, you know, the high school friends, you know, there was that zone where we're like, we're reconnecting with our high school friends that we haven't talked to in 15 years. But somehow on social media, they're there. Right. That was some people's story because they lived in a different city maybe now. And uh, I sort of wonder, well, we probably wouldn't have that connection. We wouldn't be maintaining that connection at all. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. But the choice might be between zero connection versus 10% connection versus the people that we're in. Like, you know, you're in Minneapolis. Yes. Yeah, or get it St. Right. Paul. St. Paul. No, I've, I've been learning about my twin cities today. <laughs> if, you, uh, if we were in person, you could see her, her nostrils flare a little bit more. As she, uh, yeah. We're in person. You might have gotten, you know, uh, I've learned, uh, punch in the gut or something. There, Joy, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I've learned that Eric is in Seattle, Tacoma, but he's in the Tacoma side yeah, yeah. and Sarah Joy's in, in, in the St. Paul side of Minneapolis. But you probably, I'm guessing, are most connected with the people in your church and community in Minneapolis, even though you have connections other places that you've lived. Or, and the digital environment sort of allows us to maintain mm -hmm. those long tail connections. Yeah. So do we still want those? Maybe. Right. They do take energy. Yeah. But I think if we didn't have that digital environment, they'd be at a zero. And would we lose the memory of some of those people and those times of life if we didn't have those connections? Just thinking about the high school friend, mm -hmm. you know, it might be that they spark a memory that you wouldn't have recalled on your own because you connected with them on Facebook and they're like, hey, remember that? And there's kind of this, yeah, oh yeah, that really did shape me yeah. or, you know, so. Yeah. There was, there was a time when an old prom picture of me and like, you know, <laughs> yeah. 17 of us, because, you know, right. a group of friends went to the prom. There's sort of dates going on, but, you know, it's really the group of friends. Yeah. And that picture had resurfaces about every five <laughs> years on social media. Right. And everyone tags each other and talks about it. And it's very embarrassing because we're looking at our haircuts and what we're wearing. But you're right. It does reinforce that old memory in a way yeah. that wouldn't have been. Well, I, might, I think we've dialed in kind of the thick thin continuum, which is helpful. But I also want to throw in a another dimension of the re the real and artificial lady. Okay. So and this isn't totally me, you know, but there's someone to be credited that I can't think of their name, but our experience at church is one of the groups that we have here that didn't translate very well to the virtual during the pandemic was our Alcoholics Anonymous AA groups. And, and one oh, of the things sure. that I've heard is in AA, you got to be able to smell mm. each other because if mm. somebody's started drinking again, mm. you know, you're going to smell it. They can't fake it. And I mean, people can, <clears throat> people can show up to church and all families in the car ride to church are like, okay, just pretend that we're getting along. You know, they show yeah. up and they try to look like it's all together. But I think the digital environment is especially easy to kind of curate what totally. you want to present in, in the best possible light. And I, I guess what I'm getting at is there's a kind of a getting connected tacitly with the whole person, yeah. you know, yeah. good and bad. We don't want to just remember like the highlights of our lives, but also the, the screw ups with the people that we yeah. trust and the people that can extend grace to us. The different ways that we hide in real life versus how we hide, you know, in digital. 
Although, let me chase the curation comment for just a moment, and Adam's going to know what I'm going to say, but I've said quite a lot that increasingly what we have online about us is not from us. Mm. Right. And the reason is is because I disagree that we are the only curators of our digital life. We have friends and family and other people taking photos and videos, which is why people tried to hide the video of the party they were at that someone else took to make sure their workplace doesn't see it. And so they don't get, you know, let go or these kind of things happen all the time. All the stories we see online are often from a bystander taking a video where we see the negative parts of humanity and even some of the terrible sort of racial inequities that have happened comes to mind as well. That's a good point. And so we're not purely curating. We are in our own world, but in in this actually, there's a tension here, right, between digital privacy law, which is a right for you to say, I want that deleted and I want that deleted. We go, we sort of want that. We want that right, right, you know, and Europe has that right now legally and the United States does not. But at the same time, that does allow sort of more that curation of like, let's only put the nice parts of us and not the negative parts of us. Well, and I think too, that works against the idea of truly belonging, right? If you curate something and you're part of a group because they only know this one side of you, whereas in our heart of hearts, mm-hmm. human beings, we want to belong in our the fullness of who we are. And so, again, that physical connection, knowing people in their fullness of who they are is also what really provides that sense of belonging that we all long for, which I think the internet lacks. Yeah. No, but I, Chris, I'll, I'll concede your point. I think I'm just raising the, the, the a kind of question we need to be asking. But I do think that you know we've we've all seen you know the Zoom meeting where the kid breaks in and is disruptive, <laughs> and so you see like parenting live with with people that you wouldn't normally see. So there's a lot of our works that are being exposed, even when we're in control of the medium. Real life is always going to be more real than than the digital. But I think just yeah. just paying attention right. to how that bonds us differently. Irving Goffman talks about the front stage and backstage Mm -hmm. self. And maybe we have more of a front stage self at the coffee shop than we do at church. But if I see the same people in both, that question of authenticity has to carry through across those different spaces. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Nine Lives and County, A Bounty Hunter's Journey to Faith, Hope, and Redemption, written by Dwayne Dog the Bounty Hunter Chapman. Nine Lives and Counting not only offers a fresh perspective on well-known life events, but also ventures into behind-the-scenes territory and backstories never shared publicly. Nine Lives and Counting is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So you guys are thinking on Embedded Church about placemaking, these sort of cairns. Are there challenges that you face that you think maybe there's a digital solution to this or that digital could sort of augment or supplement, kind of resolve this problem that you guys are facing? I'm even curious what the definition of placemaking would be from your perspective. Yeah. Well, I'll tackle the definition of placemaking. And Eric, you can yeah, yeah, add great. to that's it because placemaking yeah. means so many <laughs> <Yeah>. different <laughs> things to so many people. So my definition with placemaking is usually creating places where people want to be for social interaction, for human flourishing. So that can involve putting in some sort of 
community engaging element on a property, hosting an event that brings people together, that causes social interaction, things that create rhythms for the community that I would say that a, a space that doesn't have a story becomes a place that has rhythm and ritual to it. Mm. So mm. that's some of the general okay. ideas around placemaking that I would give. Um, Eric, what would you say in regard to that? No, I think you, you nailed it. One of the things I would just add is, you know, one of my pet peeves is the, is the architectural rendering of public spaces. You know, when people are designing a plaza and they, and they get to draw the people in having a great yeah. time. And then yeah. you visit that plaza built out and they're just, they just did it wrong and nobody's doing those things right. that they drew in. Fascinating. Because a successful mm-hmm. public place is successful because people choose to be there right. and spend time there. And, and that's it's organic where, a lot of times again, too. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm looking always at the, the human element. So when I think of placemaking, there's just definitely a physical component. You can really screw it up or you can get it right. But I'm looking at how the people gather there and the frequency of hanging out and how that builds that story that becomes the part of the placemaking magic. Kind of back to, to your question, Adam, you know, when we gather at church, you know, we're placemaking every time we gather, we're making space meaningful to us and we're adding and mm-hmm. creating a story together. But some of the gaps we have are people often miss church for a variety of reasons of traveling, kids sick or whatnot. And, and it used to be, you know, back in the day, people would go to church three times a week and now they go, you someone say three times a month, now it's even less, you know, they can't, they go less, less frequently. And so I think the yeah. digital environment can bring more frequency. If a mom has to stay home with sick kids, they can still tune in and participate in the service and they can be part of it if someone's traveling. Mm-hmm. Same thing. The other thing is, is turning the camera the other direction. So we bring more of ourselves into that place. And so uh, one of the, I think the sweetest things we did as a church during the lockdown was we had to bring a lot of video in of people doing scripture readings for Advent or people that they'd shot right, them right. from home. And so we got to yeah. see yeah. everyone's living room and their kids and their Christmas yeah. tree and yeah. stuff. And it, it really brought more of us into the place and helped enhance mm. that story. So that was kind of cool. But you know, obviously the downside, I, I fantasize that people are going to go to church every week now that they don't have an excuse. But what happens is a lot of them are coming to church less often in person because it's so convenient to dial in, even yeah. if you could make it there. And the line between can't make right. it and can make it is, has shifted quite a bit in the last <laughs> year. But I, I see some possibilities there yeah. for, for yeah. more more robust and rich places if we can combine the two. Right. In regard to that, I skipped church for four months over the 2020 winter because I wintered in Texas. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't use season yeah, as a right. verb, Sarah. It makes you kind sound of old. Kind of, <laughs> you know, no, elite. Very new, very new England. Yeah, well, summer that's Hampton, true. The new winter in Texas. I wintered in I, Leon Valley, yeah. Texas. It's so hoity-toity there. So. <laughs> At my parents' house in my childhood bedroom. <laughs> Just, just recently. It wasn't the worst yeah. choice, but that meant you weren't physically Correct. present with your But church. I still tuned in yeah. every week. My community group met and they were still together in person, but I was getting to Zoom in. And so I do think that it was a great yeah. way for me to maintain those relationships and those connections, even though I was about 1,200 miles away and enjoying margaritas mm-hmm. on the patio yeah. when I wasn't Zooming. <laughs> so anyways, I appreciate that element. And I would take, obviously, the conversation a little bit more to the development property side of things, because that's my lens that I come from. But thinking about placemaking and the way okay. that the digital environment can really be supportive or help overcome some of the challenges when it comes to placemaking. I think more in terms of 
gathering community voices in that process. So a lot of times placemaking is a collaborative Mm -hmm. effort, too, among people within the community really coming together and deciding, you know, what do we envision for our community? How do we create good public space? And one of the challenges is always getting people to that table and collecting those voices. And so a lot of these digital platforms have really opened Mm -hmm. up a space for more people to contribute to those conversations, for better or for worse, to the angst of some urban planners, because suddenly (laughs) they have a lot more people chiming in with opinions. At the same time, it's been a great way to really gather more community input. And I would say, too, when it comes to documenting things, too, that's one thing I encourage churches as they're thinking through, you know, how can we create good public space with our property and do some community engagement events? Also, having a way to share the story. And again, the digital world provides a great medium for people to be documenting, taking pictures, tweeting, putting it on Facebook, extending the invites, all of that in just a much easier, more comprehensive way than some of the previous ways of flyering or doing some of those types of avenues. So I see technology as being supportive and helping some of those challenges when it comes to like actual physical placemaking on a property. We're guessing flyers. No, because I mean, I think flyers are good too. <laughs> I love flyers. But you know, fan. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of are work they? and they blow away and they create litter and they cut down trees. I, just I love, sing. I love flyers. I love the way they, the I love the are, way they layer on the, on the telephone poles. And it's just, I know, but that's a little different sweet. than the flyers that you like stick under people's doors, right? There's something like oh, telephone no, no, posters are awesome. That. I'm talking about, the, I'm yeah, talking about right. real flyers that yeah, they're, the guitar <laughs> lessons, you can pull a little tab off them and then they're the, yeah, the pull tab, yeah, they're great. A little Woody Allen movie with like flyers landing on a bus bench in New York or something. But an urban planning group in the uptown neighborhood of Chicago just recently, I filled out a survey for them and they're like, how should we redo the yeah. walking environment for this corridor? And the thing they sent out when you click through showed a map of all the street corners and let you click on a street corner and say, oh, mm-hmm. I think we should put a bus stop here or I think we should have a bump yeah. out here cool. right on the map. And so they use technology in that way for us to interact with that map and create suggestions. Oh, man, Chris, can I jump and in for a I second? Because you said something that yeah. I think is really interesting. And it, I think it's, it's pertinent. It was a lot of the surveying that we did 20 years ago was misleading because people's visual, mm. like, They'd say, oh, do you like alleys or don't you like alleys? Most people think alleys are scary places. But if you actually look at pictures of alleys, a lot of urban alleys are really cool, right? There's a lot of great... Chicago has the largest collection of alleys, I think, of any urban environment in the United States. So exactly, yeah. What you just described, a visual survey allows someone to say, oh, right. I like that. Our, our problem is curb cuts on our alleys. You guys probably oh, know what curb oh, cuts are. I think it's like, you know, part of like... our key terms on our website, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I saw it. I scrolled your key terms and I was like, one, I, everyone should go check out your key terms on your website. But two, that's why I knew I would enjoy talking with you because I knew like most of them. There was some I was learning. But a curb cut, of course, is when an alley comes out to hit the street. But when the, where the sidewalk is, they make it so a car can roll down, right? They take away the curb. They cut the curb. And the problem with that, of course, is that a car can come out and hit a pedestrian very quickly without realizing it. In Chicago, we have a law where the car is supposed to stop before they come out to the street. They're supposed to stop before the sidewalk. Most of them don't. And it's well known in Chicago that old Chicagoans just honk their horn as they're flying through that sidewalk. So they go, and they fly out onto the street. And it's dangerous. And so that's what we're talking about with the curb cut. (laughs) But but all our alleys have curb cuts, unfortunately. So there's no way around that one. We can talk about curb radii. 
I do if you want to turn it Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, Eric walks with his tape measure. <laughs> I don't know that, but I'm going to guess that. Yeah. Uh, I love this stuff. I think, uh, you know, a lot of our Device and Virtue listeners have heard me talk about bikes. Adam, we have never done an episode on bikes, and we really need yeah, to, because that's that one possible? of my other favorite topics, the best technology ever. Well, you can talk about e-bikes. <laughs> that's the combining of bikes and technology. Mm. Low-key, I think e-bikes may be the most important physical technology change this decade. Mm. And so we have Logic. talked about e-scooters and micro-mobility, but I think e-bikes really have a lot of potential in urban environments to change the way people live and work. So maybe next time we get together and we don't hate each other after doing this, we can talk about e-bikes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take it back to the whole preacher thing because mm. Eric is a pastor, oh. so I'm going to put device and virtue on the hot seat a little bit. Although I did learn that Chris, well, both of you all have seminary degrees actually, right? Uh, I have a master's degree. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, and I used to be an executive pastor also. There you go. So So, have have done the preaching. Eric is not the only pastor in the room, but many (laughs) preachers consider preaching as a formative event for the body of Christ. And they experience that preaching as a two-way communication, right? So you're up there preaching, you're reading people's responses kind of this interaction that's happening between the two. So is there a way that this two-way communication between a pastor and a congregation can work in an online environment? Mm-hmm. So I, you're first, right? Oh, yeah, I'll jump in. Because <laughs> my reaction was like, is it a two-way conversation? Because unless it's the black church. Uh, Eye rolls or size. It's a totally a two-way conversation. Yeah, Eric, tell us. What, well, let me, let, me, let me back up. So I actually know this more from my wife's world. She's a theater teacher and director. Mm. And so she puts on the the high school musical across the street. And she does like a dozen shows in a run. And I see all of them. And I will tell you that the audience gets the show they deserve. The audiences that laugh get a funnier show. The audiences that are sentimental get a more tender show. The audiences that are dead get a dead show. And I would say the same thing about preaching. Even though they're not saying a word, their eyes say a lot. And I repeat stuff when I feel like I've gone over their head. I pick up the energy when I feel like I'm losing them. I slow down. I, I, I realize we've, we've hit some sacred territory. I slow down and I, I change my body posture. It's yeah, it's not obvious, like in the black shirts. They're not saying a lot <laughs> vocally, but it's a huge two-way conversation. I actually learn yeah. a lot preaching from their response. I, it shapes mm-hmm. my theology. I think I understand mm-hmm. something until I try to explain it to the congregation. I think, okay, I actually oh, get man. this. I just recently was reading uh, a Christianity Today article. I have the physical copy nice. here. Nice. And uh, they said that pews, church pews, came into common use in the 1400s. Yeah. And a medieval historian was speculating. They think that that happened because the importance of the sermon was increasing in the 1400s. And people were like, we're not just going to hang around and stand around here. We need the place to sit if you're going to talk that long. And for, for us... The, the idea of like sitting in uh, a church space is just like a foregone conclusion. But for most of the church's history, people didn't have places to sit, or at least they didn't have pews. Maybe they sat on the ground. And like, that's just mind boggling to me and kind of hard to imagine. But you fast forward then to the 1990s and you have mega churches, right? And everyone is sitting in a pew or a really cushy chair and oh yeah and it's mauve it's mauve colored <laughs> it's yeah. right and <laughs> as i think about that posture of the mega church and 
Eric, I take your experience as instructive, but I think the experience for the congregant is I'm one in a sea of faces and what I'm doing, my posture or my face, uh, whether I'm responding is immaterial to what the pastor is doing. And so this idea of passivity sort of really gets amplified with the megachurch. So people, they, they simply don't respond, or at least they don't intend to. That really, for me, sets the stage for live streaming, but it transitions from I don't respond to I can't yeah. respond mm-hmm. in, in the live streaming context. And that's a huge shift, but I think we were already on a trajectory with the advent of something like the megachurch to make it acceptable to watch something on a live stream. Chris, I think, alluded to this a little bit earlier when we were talking about pandemic. You know, with big churches, they got better at production. The things that they were already really good at, they decided to make high production value live streams. And so everybody was just kind of watching them. Smaller churches, they did something different. They got better at community, so they did more Zoom calls. And that sort of smaller congregation experienced a different kind of pandemic church experience than the large church. You know, live streaming has sort of taken the mega church to its logical end, right. to this this end of passivity. And the online experience during the pandemic is forcing us to reevaluate. Is the sermon at the center of church life? Is it this passive experience? Or what are we putting kind of at the center of that experience of what church is? Is it preaching? Is it community? Is it pastoral care? Is it worship? What is the thing that is drawing these people together? I think the pandemic and live streaming have forced that conversation. And for that reason, there are people who have just sort of left because they're like, whatever we were doing at church prior to the pandemic, that wasn't enough for me or whatever. Mm. You know, they've reevaluated what they think church is for. And I think the church has to rethink, create a new apologetic for what church is for and what value it brings. Eric, do you have a rebuttal against that? <laughs> oh, no, I was. I think you're right. I, I don't think it, that passivity started with the online environment. And you, you're multi-site, of course. It's going to be a one-way thing in a multi-site, at least the sermon part. I know the campus pastor is going to do some attractive sure, sure. stuff, but I think it's a trajectory that's been going. But I, I am kind of half-hoping, maybe Chris, you're the golden ticket here, but I know I don't know a lot about technology, but I know like you can go to conferences where people can text in like live replies of what's happening and you see it up on the screen. I I bet there's stuff that could recreate a little bit of that two-way stuff. And I'm hoping you're going to fill us in with that. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times we go towards what are these digital aids that can help with interactivity in a sermon context. And what I'm going to say to you is blow that up. <laughs> and some of those things can be helpful. And yes, we can text to see a poll live on the screen. How many of us today want help with our marriages? Oh, yeah. You know, those can be nice. And the mega churches really have gone that direction and try to create interactivity without the proximity right. or the personality. I think it's ultimately a failure. My suggestion is that the modern sermon, I mean, comes from print culture. It comes from the culture of, as we are printing books, And I mean, Calvin owns his own library. He gets really close in in Geneva to his book printer and loves doing these all day Saturday sermons with the city of Geneva, right? And he goes and he brings in the poor people and has them, lectures them for like, you know, and the reform tradition is probably the tradition that most carries on the preaching tradition. Now you sort of have a divide between the maybe the evangelical churches that like, if it's not a 45 minute sermon, a little bit of yelling, a little bit of crying, it's not real. And, you know, then you sort of have sometimes your mainline church 
churches that are like, we need a 10 minute homily and a better end in a poem, you know, like uh, from Jaber Crow, you know, like, so hey, that, don't knock Jaber Crow. Um, it's an amazing book. <laughs> so, like, I mean, we have sort of these different philosophies going on, but I think the digital environment needs to call us to rethink about the pedagogy, the way we learn in community. And it's not a one way lecture, and it's not just the way we sort of tack on little digital things to that. The Sermon on the Mount is a collection of things Jesus said, not he sat down for three hours and gave a sermon. You know, where is our sermon culture coming from? And how do we want to think about the way we teach the text in our community in a TikTok world? Mm. In a world where 30 seconds to 60 seconds does a lot of work and has a lot of influence. And these are the questions that digital technology is really calling pastors to grapple with. And I think a generation is going to pass before they really want to do that because we associate textuality and a lecture with the proper way to deal with the text. And I, I think there may be our questions around that. I'm s- <laughs> no, yeah. I'm listening. I'm, I'm, listening. Like, I'm not a pastor, but I'm stumped to think yeah. about how you preach in a TikTok world. <laughs> Well, maybe we don't preach. Maybe we don't frame the liturgy in that same way. And in an Anglican liturgy, and I was an Anglican for a while, we have the service of the Word first and then the service of the Eucharist of communion second. It's actually two services that they bound to one. So we build one around the sermon and then build the one around the Eucharist. But the gospel reading was always the center of that thing. We stood up and read the gospel loudly and clearly in the middle of the deacon would do it in the Catholic Church, you know. And I think the reading of the gospel, the euangelion, the the proclaimed news actually becomes the sermon. And then the sermon was just sort of to comment a little bit on that. I feel like I want to go like, what's his name? Neil Postman. And just in this, you know, and he's grumpy and it's potentially (laughs) inevitable, but it disturbed me a little bit in the sense of like, I think we're losing a sense of nuance, you know, in the shorter form communication, we got this or that or flow or con or it has to boom. Yeah. Yeah. You can't say, well, I I agree with you, but in a nuance, you know, like, and I think it takes a little more time. Yeah. It's my profession. I'm making a case for that, for the longer sermon because we can put some nuance in there. Well, I agree with you on the short form. We can get to the headline, slap yourself in the face, it needs to shock, and we have a lot of that out there. But an emoji actually can have a lot of nuance in it. Linguistic studies of the way emoji carry emotion and meaning, and it's why Gen Z sends you a skull of crossbones, (laughs) and you're like, "What what are we doing here? We get recontextualized, right? We don't necessarily lose nuance because the communication modes change. The nuances change. And so that's my suggestion there. Well, I would say for nuance, you really need a podcast. Like we're doing right now. (laughs) Absolutely. A long podcast. A long podcast is right. Someone who's been really influential to me is Jamie Smith. I was going to bring him. Kingdom. (laughs) Yeah. And his ideas that you are what you love and you're not just a brain on a stick. This idea that we are just absorbing, Chris used the word pedagogy, we're just in a sermon maybe absorbing information. How is that getting implemented and practiced in our daily lives? And the internet as this sort of information superhighway, this information overload, information fatigue space, the sermon is competing with that. In some ways, the built environment and the neighborhoods and the placemaking of churches goes against that grain and says, hey, there's something really valuable to the pedagogy of the built environment and how it's shaping our interactions with one another, the community that it's building. And so how can we incorporate those places into 
forming the people of God to become more like Jesus in the process. But I think it's possible to think about the heavens declare the glory of God. And so can the church building do the same thing? Right. Well, I was thinking about how that speaks to ritual. And that's so much of what Jamie Smith talks about of the practice, right? Mm -hmm. You have to do things over and over. It's a practice. It's a ritual. And so thinking about these short snippets, a TikTok environment, are you able to create ritual around that type of approach or not? I don't know. And then what are you losing when you don't have that practice? So I think that really sets the stage for the next question we have. I'm imagining, okay, I'm in a church and God has really shown himself faithful to our church and we want to celebrate that and we want to remember that. How can the built environment help us do that? And are there ways that the digital environment could learn from that and take similar approaches to celebrating what God has done in this community for these people for future generations so that they can look back and, and see that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll, I'll bring us back to where we started with the Cairns. Cairns, C-A-R-I-R-N-S. And this is God's faithfulness, but maybe in a kind of more somber way. We had a real tough season as a church a few years ago. Before the pandemic, a lot of marriages imploding in our church, and it was just really hard on families and the whole church. And we felt the leadership of the church felt really implicated that we weren't very, we weren't pastorally available when things were starting to unravel and taking by surprise. And we all just felt like it was just a, we were all just kind of grieving and, and feeling just you know, convicted by the whole experience. And so we put together a solemn assembly, which is kind of a, you know, lesser known ritual from Wicked Joel that we kind of made up a little bit, but it's basically like a funeral mixed with Ash Wednesday, kind of public repentance, kind of penance kind of event. And it was a very rich service in a lot of ways, but the centerpiece of it was we had a, a little table in the center of the sanctuary. We had some pottery that we put there, a teapot and a, and a cup and a saucer, like a chalice type thing. And we did what we mm. called a liturgy of smashing, where we, we did a, mm. we wow, did a, yeah. a imprecatory psalm. And in between the stanzas, a guy took a hammer and just smashed the stuff to kind of represent the, just the Whoa. grief that we were all experiencing. And then we, we paused and we said, all of us have been touched by things that have fallen apart in our midst. You know, these, these shards represent that. Mm-hmm. And so we invite you in the next moments to, to tell if you've, if you've experienced some pain from this, grab one of these shards mm-hmm. and just place them at the foot of our baptismal font as a kind of prayer that God would knit us back together and, you know, through his faithfulness would, would overcome our unfaithfulness, et cetera. And so we did that and it was really meaningful. But then the person who supplied the pottery, this really artsy woman in our church, she's a very good store shopper, et cetera, et cetera. She, she said, I had a vision <laughs> of this passage from Revelation where, if a, you know, the, the, the river uh, goes through the, the city and the, the trees for the healing of the nations. And I want to make a mosaic out of those shattered pieces depicting that scene so she did a beautiful mosaic and then we put that uh, on an easel in front of the church for the next year we had a year of we call it the year of jubilee we, well there's a whole bunch there but anyway that was the, that's the karen i'm talking about this this mosaic and that became kind of a really important memory both pain and god's faithfulness and the hope embodied and so that's the story i tell as maybe a lead off to how do we what is it about that that the digital environment could recreate or learn from and, and maybe even extend you know um Hmm. It's a beautiful yeah. picture. Is, I really yeah. love the the physicality and the sort of the worship in yeah. the community. Yeah. So I, I think it was something about the collaboration that we all mm-hmm. kind of contributed to it. Somebody had to take the lead and put it together, but 
you know, I imagine some of that could be done digital reading. Um, right. Well, I have examples of that. And so I love that. So because like, for instance, I was part of a church for a while that would do similar things to the pottery thing you're describing. We sat in a circle intentionally, had a round table and put the cross at the center. So we'd look at each other across the room through the cross. And we'd use, we did a lot of, you know, put the, a worship band, but behind the circle. So, you know, we're sort of all looking at the center with the music behind us. But we had two screens that were on either side. And each worship service, we had what was called the icon. And the icon was a video, maybe two minutes, created by artists in the church. And it would be original video or images along with original music uh, almost every time. And it would change for Lent or for Easter season, or these things. And they reflected video of the community, or it reflected things that were going on, or usually the local community plus national things. I remember particularly one that was a lament about refugees and how they were being treated in the United States. And photos from both the news of like sort of families that were experiencing mm-hmm. devastation. And then also photos in our neighborhood of sort of barren places or families all backed by Tim. I know Tim. Tim was a songwriter and played his acoustic guitar and sang it over that video. And then we get listened to Tim playing the acoustic while we watched these images of this neighborhood. And we meditated on that as a, a lament and a picture of that we could bring God's yeah. hope into. And that's how those digital creations can be really beautiful. So it's not the same as a physical pottery. In some ways, it's really dramatic and big and gorgeous colors and music and a lot of things that uh, maybe could stand against it, yeah, stand with yeah. it. I always subscribe to the Biola Advent and Lent email project. Yeah, I do too. <laughs> and it's so great because during those seasons, you get those daily emails that are curated by a person who shares a scripture, their own personal thoughts, a piece of artwork and a piece of music, right? <laughs> And it's a digital way of bringing these worlds together to really help you create memory and ideas around Advent and Lent. So I love that. All right. So we've been talking about how the physical world can have Karen's. and possibly the digital world as well. So I'd love to hear from the device and virtue team what you think the digital Karens could be for the digital world. Mm -hmm. Are there Karens Mm -hmm. that can be created in that space? There are tons of these. The very first thing we got to think about is things like a photos app. Have you ever had the experience of your phone popping up something that says five years ago, you and this person were doing yeah. this? Kind of creeps me out. And it's uh, kind of fun. These, <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit of both, right? These photo apps that, and I take tons of photos. I'm just that guy. Like my phone is mostly my camera. So I'll have these photos pop up from trips and friendships and moments that really sort of bring me back or help me remember specifically. Lawrence Scott refers to YouTube as a huge archive of memory and the internet. Uh, that brings us back not only to things that existed when YouTube existed, but has now become a recording of human history of uh, videos or images or other things that existed before YouTube existed. And the internet has this weird dichotomy of being both timeless and a huge yeah. archive 
like an archive of everything. In some ways, our life is remembered maybe more than we want it to. Have you guys read Ted Chiang, the science fiction futurist author? He writes short stories that help us imagine futures and where we could go. He writes a story about a, a fictional remem device. It's a thing that in the future we all wear on our eye and our eyeglasses and allows us to go back, sort of like Google Photos or Facebook, but right in our brains and remember any moment in video at any time in the past of our lives. And he imagines how would that affect our lives? How would it affect our relationships? And in the story, there's a, a guy that gets divorced and he remembers the arguments with his wife and he remembers how it affected their daughter. And uh, when the remem device comes out, he puts it on and thinks, what I will do is go back and recall the memories of how bad she was to me. And of course, what he discovers is that he misremembered some things and that actually he was really bad to her uh, in cases and that his humanness had changed the way the memory worked put him in rose colored glasses but the video actually recalled that he was worse than he thought and it created this dichotomy did the technology remember truly or did the human remember truly about what's going on this is tough, yeah. right? This is fascinating. This is interesting. We have an episode. We went back to baseball a long time ago and talked about should it, baseball have human empires, which honestly get balls and strikes wrong yeah. sometimes, or should we switch to a computer that accurately gets it pretty much every time? Which is better to have that sort of fuzzy error around memory or to have that computer accuracy? <laughs> And so when we talk about setting up memories for each other collectively and individually, I think we have the contrast between the beauty of us being able to maybe have a video 50 years from now of our church's celebration on something and the disaster of us having that perfect video 50 years ago. We often think of the internet as a communication device, but it is also a record-keeping device. The question is, how long will it keep those memories? How long will it keep that record? Is it as durable as a book, which, you know, you can find books from the 800s or the 1200s, right? And they are still legible to us. But only like six of them. <laughs> yeah. But will the, will the internet be legible in a thousand years? Maybe, maybe not. As we were talking about these art projects, I find it interesting that we go to these places of art and storytelling in order to think about Cairns, Reddit, the social media platform in 2017 they had this art project where it was one web page and everyone could like change one pixel at a time or something thousands if not tens of thousands of people got involved in this and it became this huge negotiated space there were people who were trying to make an american flag and people who were trying to make an image of che guevara all these different groups but i think there are collaborative ways to do those things. The internet, as it's been experienced so far, has really been this sort of individualist system. I think that comes out of print culture. I think that comes out of the, you know, kind of triumph of the modern self. And I wonder if the future of the internet is one that will be more collective and collaborative. I think there are, there are lots of platforms already that are pitching themselves as helping groups to collaborate together. You know, the metaverse could be a space where two podcasts get together and chat. Uh, Imagine that. I'm thinking out loud here, but I almost feel like what's needed is some sort of covenantal sustainability or something yeah. where the collaboration breaks down. It's so easy to opt out. Yeah. Whereas mm -hmm. in real life, you can't, it's a little harder to leave the room. 
you know, whereas right. this you just clicked away. But we're talking about covenantal, maybe digital art done by a covenantal yeah, community. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. again, yeah. not the separate, like, oh, here's my online world over here and my church world over here. No, no, no. I'm just adding that as kind of a, that part of community, that sort of, I'm going to stay at the table, even if yeah. I'm uncomfortable kind of commitment yeah. for things to really, I think, be the kind of collaboration you like. All right, Sarah, Joy, and Eric, this has been such a delight. At the end of every Device and Virtue episode, we have a liturgy that we call Vice or Virtue. So this is a technology that you may not think of as a technology, but we want to get your hot take on, is this a vice or is it a virtue? What's been your experience with that tech? So with that, it's time for Vice or Virtue. Drum roll. Alleys. <laughs> Alleyways. It's too easy. Too easy. Too Everybody's going to say virtue. It, it's really? a virtue. Absolutely. Compared to... Oh, a wow. Why? Yeah, okay. Why? Well, okay. The real technology is the cul-de-sac, which eliminates alleys. We have to put Whoa. all your trash out front. Alleys <laughs> allow us to put the, the back door things in their proper place so mm. we can have mm. our messes in the back. And, you know, depending on how you want to engage your neighbors, you know, you can... My wife and I do sidewalk walks or we do alley walks. They're completely okay. different experiences. And al- oh, wow. alleys is just a really more kind of messy way to experience your neighbors, you know. Um, <laughs> and your alley neighbors, I, I just love alleys. I think it's such a fun way to experience life. <laughs> wow. We're another 45 minutes for, for a whole yes. thing on alleys. Yeah. I, I love alleys. <laughs> wow. I, lament, I lament neighborhoods that don't have alleys. It just, it just mm. confuses me to know, Aaron. See, you're an urban planner type, but I think most people are going to think it was a vice right away. So virtue for <laughs> oh, you. Yeah. Sarah Joy, what do you think? I say virtue as well. So the great thing about alleys <laughs> is that they're narrow. So cars should be driving slower, often are. So they're great play spaces for kids in urban areas because mm. they're able mm. to throw the ball and get out of the way if cars come down. Basketball hoops yeah, on alleys. Exactly. Awesome. Exactly. I also have appreciated my alleyway in St. Paul because I am in a small historic apartment building and then on the other side of the alley are single family homes and they often have snow blowers and in the winter I make friends with all my neighbors on the other side of the alley because they see me shoveling out my car and they're like oh I'm really sorry do you want me to just like blow that out for you and I'm like that'd be awesome and then like a few weeks ago awesome. the guy behind me in the alley was out there in his driveway like staining some furniture or something and he was listening to old school Shakira which I grew up in San Antonio Texas and she's like amazing her Spanish stuff is way better than her English stuff and I could go out there and I was like dude you're listening to old school Shakira like we got to be friends and we had this moment where we like bonded over that which that wouldn't happen on a street like so it's in the alley where it's like quieter and you can have those interactions it's like a front porch on the backside yeah, mm-hmm. where you can actually interact with people <laughs> passing by. You know, Eric, unlike you, I did not grow up in a place that had either alleys or was very walkable. Cars have always been a part of my experience. The, the only like association I have with alleys is like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Right. And they go into the sewer, <laughs> but maybe they, the they like pop up. <laughs> right, right. Or like Batman like shows up in the alleyway. Like oh, I literally have... 
no personal reference. You know, I've been in alleys where there are rats and <laughs> trash, but I'm persuaded by your argument. And I do see the virtue of alleyways. I've heard that New York had alleyways and they filled them all in. And so now all the trash is out at the curb and it is not a pleasant experience. Yeah. So I will concur. Yes, they are a virtue. Chris. Well, I think the story for New York is that actually, well, at least the smaller version of New York didn't build their lots mm. big enough for alleys originally mm. in Chicago after we had the fire in 1871. We rebuilt and we planned alleys. And so Chicago is the largest U.S. city with the number of alleys. We have 1,900 miles no of alleys way. in Chicago <laughs> like and, and about 10 times that of rats. <laughs> so we have a, a lot of, uh, it's a fact of life living in the city exactly. that our trash goes back there. And so do the critters that like to eat the trash. And so there are just like little critters, and they are not small critters. They are little critters. Yeah. I'm holding up my hands to indicate a shoebox size rat, which is Rodents not untypical. Also, I'm yeah, gonna. Yeah, yeah. Also, uh, do they even exist? <laughs> well, I'm waiting to hear your vice or virtue now. Yeah, I, what I, is I, it? I don't know which way you're going to go. I know. Well, I like to keep it confusing because Sarah Joy talked about the winter and her Minneapolis winters and alleys, which I'm confused, guys, because Chicago winters and alleys are the worst. Mm. We cannot get out of the alleys. The city doesn't plow the alleys. They do pull the streets. And so when we get a foot of snow, no one is moving oh. with their cars. Well, I was about to say that was a negative, but maybe that is a positive. But that's when your neighbors become <laughs> your true neighbors because you're helping each other out. Yeah. Oh, I was trying for vice, but you're right, guys. I'm going to say it's a virtue. I, I think we need to have digital alleys. We need to figure out what those are because there are places where that trash just needs to go in the back alley of the internet. Just to sum up, I think we all conceded virtue except for Gotham City. In Gotham right, City, there, there, there are vices. So. <laughs> that's absolutely right. Yeah. Guys, this has been fantastic. Thanks for having us on your podcast. Likewise. Thanks for having <laughs> us on yours. I'm curious to let our listeners know, the Embedded Church listeners, how can they find Device and Virtue? You can find us at deviceandvirtue.com or on Instagram or on Twitter at devicevirtue. What about you guys? Where are you guys at? We are at embeddedchurch.com. And we also have an Instagram account at Embedded Church Podcast. Well, I hope the folks that listen to Device and Virtue can check you yeah, guys out. for sure. Because I think there's probably a lot to yeah. learn from the way that we could think about Christians, about how to plan cities and live in our churches and communities. So thank you guys so much for being yeah, with awesome. us. Thank you. Yeah, same to you all, because your ideas around technology help us understand the benefits it provides and, you know, some of the things we got to figure out to make it better, right? And how that shapes Absolutely. the church. She sounds barely convinced, Adam. <laughs> we did our best. We did our best. Thank you. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.